Hello, and welcome to the November 2016 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up this month, the Supreme Court granted cert in two cases of interest to the LGBT community. Perhaps we should start with the Gavin Grimm case, Art? Okay. Uh, actually, three cases, yes. but uh, we'll focus on these two. Uh, all right, so the Fourth Circuit had ruled uh, back in May that the Federal District Court in Virginia should defer to the interpretation of Title IX by the U.S. Department of Education in uh, this case of Gavin Grimm, a transgender boy who's attending high school in Gloucester County, Virginia. Uh, uh, Mr. Grimm uh, had indicated to the principal before his sophomore year began that he had transitioned and that he wanted to use the boys' restroom facilities. Uh, we're told for reasons that aren't explained in any of the decisions I've read that for, for some reason he's not taking physical education. Uh, so the issue of locker rooms isn't in this case. So the principal said, fine, you can use the boys' restroom. But some of the other boys objected and told their parents, and the parents contacted the school board, and all of a sudden there's a big to-do, and they're holding emergency meetings. And the school board adopted the policy that restroom access would be restricted to people whose birth certificate showed the gender assigned for the restroom. So the boys' room could only be used by people who were indicated as male on their birth certificates. And uh, I don't think Grimm is in the position yet of, uh, of having his birth certificate changed. Uh, I think in Virginia you need surgery for that, and you can't get surgery before you're 18. So he's, he's a high school student. Uh, so uh, they barred him from the restroom, and he reached out to the ACLU of Virginia for representation. They brought suit under Title IX. They asked the Education Department to weigh in as an interested party, and the Education Department produced a letter in January of 2014, I guess it is, or 15, no, 2015, right, uh, produced a letter which basically echoed a position that they had taken online in a Q&A guidance that they posted in December of 2014, uh, in which they said, that transgender boys are to be treated as boys and transgender girls are to be treated as girls and uh, therefore they should have the same restroom access of other boys and other girls. Uh, the uh, federal district judge absolutely refused to follow this. Uh, the federal district judge said that uh, to him, this was uh, Robert Dumar of the uh, district court in Virginia, he said it was clear the regulation said you can have a separate boys' room and a separate girls' room, and he referred, in his opinion, to, uh, to Gavin Grimm as a natal female, thereby immediately buying into the school district's position that you are what you're designated at birth. Uh, and until you get your birth certificate changed by some procedure, we will treat you as the gender you were designated at birth. Uh, so this was appealed. Uh, the uh, the district judge dismissed the Title IX claim, uh, but reserved judgment on an equal protection claim and denied a motion for preliminary injunction by Gavin Grimm, uh, who hoped that he, during his junior year he'd be able to use the boys' room. Uh, so it went to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit, 
in reversing the uh, dismissal of the Title IX claim and the denial of the preliminary injunction, which was remanded to the district judge, uh, they said that under rules governing the relative roles of administrative agencies and federal courts in interpreting statutes, uh, it's well established if a statute is vague, then the agency's interpretation, or the statute is ambiguous, the agency's interpretation of ambiguities in the statute shall be accorded deference under the Chevron decision. And if the agency has adopted a regulation and the regulation is itself ambiguous as to a particular point, the agency's interpretation of the regulation will be deferred to under a decision called Auer versus Robbins, which a few of the justices have voiced concerns about and, and wanted to reconsider, including the judge who wrote it, Anthony Scalia, who now, of course, has been removed by death from the court. Uh, but Justice Thomas, I think, had also uh, expressed reservations about the Auer, Auer doctrine. But the Fourth Circuit said this is the uh, controlling rule. So what we have to figure out is, is the regulation ambiguous? The district judge thought it was clear. The district judge said there's no ambiguity here. They can say that boys use this room, girls use that room, and they can decide who they think is a boy or a girl. And uh, the uh, Fourth Circuit, in a two-to-one decision, uh, said, no, we see an ambiguity here because although the regulation says that you can have a separate boys' room and a girls' room, it doesn't say what you do about transgender people and how you decide whether a transgender person should be treated as a boy or a girl. Uh, so they said, as to that, we should be deferring to the agency. Uh, so they sent the case back to Judge Dumar, and Judge Dumar issued the injunction. Uh, Judge Dumar denied an application to stay. The Fourth Circuit denied an application for on-bank review of its ruling and uh, an application to stay. Uh, the uh, school district applied for a stay to the Supreme Court, and by a 5-3 to three vote, they got a stay pending the filing of a cert petition which uh, they did at the end of the summer. And the Supreme Court granted the cert petition, but they didn't grant on all three questions that were posed in the cert petition. The first question asked them basically to reconsider the Auer versus Robbins doctrine, as some members of the court had suggested that they do. They did not grant cert on that, so they're not going to be reconsidering Auer. But the second question is, was Auer properly applied in this case? And the third question goes to the ultimate merits uh, of whether... Uh, Gavin Grimm was entitled to a preliminary injunction because he had a strong likelihood of winning his claim that this violated Title IX. Uh, so, so there's some very high stakes here. Yeah, and, and lots of speculation about why would the Supreme Court take this case when this is the first Court of Appeals case on the issue and this is an interlocutory appeal. Well, my fear is this was a conservative grant of cert and not the liberals, and they're not happy that they Gavin won in the Fourth Circuit on this issue. Well, but but the point is uh, you need four votes for a cert grant. Uh, if the four Republican appointees voted for a cert grant out of unhappiness with the Fourth Circuit's decision, that means we've lost Kennedy. But it doesn't mean we've lost the case because if the four Democratic appointees vote to the contrary, it's a tie. Uh. And the Fourth Circuit decision remains the decision. Yeah. Uh, it's affirmed by an evenly divided court. They don't even write an opinion. Uh if a majority coalesces around the view that the Auer case uh, was not properly applied here because the regulation is not ambiguous, uh, that is a setback uh, for the legal rights of transgender kids all over the country, and not just in uh, public schools. 
uh, any school that gets federal funding, any educational institution, so it's colleges as well. Uh, part of the challenge to HB2 in North Carolina is prefaced on Title IX. And Title IX, in, uh, in this interpretation by the Education Department, is being challenged in lawsuits brought in Texas and Nebraska on behalf of, uh, I think, two dozen states altogether. And uh, there's a lawsuit against an Illinois school district that settled the Title IX case of, on this topic with the Education Department, uh, raising the same issues. And I think that the, the issue is being raised in the same context that the HB2 litigation it's being raised in the litigation about HB 1523 in Mississippi. It's amazing we have to memorize all these bill numbers, uh, try to keep them straight. Yeah. Pardon the expression. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so the Supreme Court's going to and, – and the other thing that's noteworthy about this case, as far as I can tell, this is only the second time in its history that the Supreme Court has granted cert on a case raising transgender rights. Uh, the prior was a case involving a transgender prisoner. Uh, the D. Farmer case, uh, who uh, was uh, assaulted and raped uh, by a fellow inmate and who claimed an Eighth Amendment violation. And the Supreme Court actually wrote a pretty decent decision there uh, about how the, uh, the Eighth Amendment obligations of prison officials when they have prisoners who they can tell from who they are and how they act are in, at risk and what uh, obligations the prison authorities have to protect them. Uh, so that first case on transgender issues actually turned out reasonably well. They upheld uh, D. Farmer's right to sue under the Eighth Amendment. But this case, who knows? And, and this gets to a bigger question, uh, which is why it's so important. Uh, if they reach the underlying issue, what does because of sex mean when the phrase is used in a federal discrimination statute? And we're not just talking employment. We're talking the Fair Credit Act, the Fair Housing Act. Uh, we're talking about uh, acts involving hate crimes. We're talking about all kinds of statutes. And because of sex, entered federal law back in the 60s and 70s. These uh, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 64, uh, Title IX came in in 1972. At the time, I think anyone who just looked at the legislative history and the discussion at the time would have to conclude that it's unlikely Congress intended to protect people from gender identity discrimination when they pass these laws. But the question is whether now, after decades of new understanding, new social developments, new legal developments, it is appropriate for the administrative agency that enforces Title IX or the agency that enforces Title VII, which has taken the same position on this issue, uh, to construe the cause of sex broadly to include gender in all of its variety, including sexual orientation, including gender identity, including uh, sexual stereotyping and nonconformity with gender norms and things of that sort. The Supreme Court has blessed some of that yeah. in the Price Waterhouse case and in the Oncal case. And as you mentioned, uh, Justice Scalia in the Oncal case, I mean, it was probably clear that the Congress didn't intend to cover that kind of harassment, but right. it's, the words themselves have meaning. And right. Well, but there, you know, he, he, had, he had a clear textual basis because he said there's no indication to us on its face that Title VII was restricted to claims of women asserting they were discriminated against by men yeah. because they were women. He said what it says is you can't be discriminated because of sex. So Mr. Onkal was singled out for discrimination by his coworkers because he was a man. 
And it actually feeds back to the Price Waterhouse case because he is a man that didn't meet the stereotype of a roustabout on an oil platform in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. But I so, guess what I'm saying is that logic can be extended to Gavin yes. Graham. You know, but right. it, it requires accepting the sincerity of transgender people and their right. gender identities. Right. I mean, as reflected, in, and in fact, as part of the appeal of Judge Dumar's original dis- uh, dismissal, there was a request to the Fourth Circuit, if they remand, to send it to a different judge, because they felt that comments he had made in the courtroom suggested that he did not accept the reality of gender identity, yeah. that uh, he was one of the doubters who thinks, well, you know, today he wants to be a boy, tomorrow he wants to be a girl again. This is just a matter of preference. And the evidence, mounting evidence, both from the experience of transgender people themselves and from people who have studied uh, in, in the medical professions uh, the experience of transgender people, it's clear that it's a very deep-seated identity issue. It's not a mere preference that's changeable. Uh, opponents of laws banning gender identity discrimination come in with this argument, well, you know, someone who wants to get, a man who wants to get access to a ladies' room will declare himself a woman and go in there. Well, no, that's, that's not how this works. You have to be diagnosed by a medical professional based on a deep-seated, long-standing identity uh, that you have finally confronted in your life and decided to act upon after usually many, many years of contemplation. It's, it's happening at earlier and earlier ages now, and we're seeing elementary school kids uh, who, uh, who, who strongly feel their identity is not the one that their parents uh, relied on when they gave them their name and when they were noted on the birth certificate. so But it's a phenomenon for which there is mounting evidence that there is probably some genetic grounding to it. Uh, and this is not just someone deciding, oh, I'm tired of being a girl, I'll be a boy today. You know, restroom facilities are inadequately protective generally of the privacy of everybody. Uh, so the people who are arguing that this is absolutely necessary to protect the privacy of cisgender students and not having to see someone with the opposite set of genitals. So it's a strange case. But one other thing we should throw into the mix here is the presidential election and the Supreme Court vacancy. And we're right. recording this, what is it, four days before, before the, the election? election but, yes. uh, you know, that could possibly give us, uh, give Gavin another justice that might be open-minded to his claims here. More right? close-minded to his claims. Right. I mean, the, the thing we have to remember is the cert grant list the end of October means the case will probably be argued uh, maybe February of 2017, uh, which means that if there is not a ninth justice seated by then, it will be heard by the four-member court. If a new justice is seated after that date, uh, using as a precedent how they dealt with uh, a time when Justice Powell missed a lot of cases due to uh, medical condition, uh, the court, on any case where they were divided four to four, they asked Justice Powell, would he like to participate? Would he want to participate based on the transcript, or would he want to participate by being able to question counsel in a hearing, in which case the court will put over the case for re-argument? Uh, so if a judge is seated before the Supreme Court announces an opinion, but after the oral argument, it's possible that the case may be put over for re-argument or decided with the uh, last judge relying on the transcript. And more than the transcript these days, you can also listen to a, a tape recording of the argument. Uh, so it's possible that it will be decided by a nine-member court, even if it's the next president who gets to a point, assuming that if the next president is Hillary Clinton, the Republicans don't stonewall a nomination, as they're now some of them are threatening to do, and try to keep the court at eight members.
in which case we may be in for a lot of uh, constitutional questions that can't be decided. The uh, last strange. thing we should say on this uh, area of the law is the Hively case has been granted uh, rehearing on Bonk. Right. So, so the Seventh Circuit, that, right? Uh, the, the, the Seventh Circuit may be deciding for us whether they're going to change their position on whether sexual orientation is covered under Title Seven. Yeah. Which is a very important question, as to which there are also arguments pending before three judge panels in the Second Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit. So. It seems very likely that that will be a circuit split somewhere along the line, and we will end up before the Supreme Court on that issue within a term or two. So we're going to be very busy at the Supreme Court. Uh, Of course, Congress could preempt all of this by passing the Equality Act and making it clear that sexual orientation and gender identity are discrimination because of sex because it says so in the statute. All right. right. The other the other cert grants. Yes. Uh, they they had a busy day on October twenty eighth. They they only granted five petitions, but three of them are really of interest to us. Uh, another one uh, has to do with social media restrictions on sex offenders. Uh, North Carolina says that uh, someone who's a registered sex offender cannot access social media where minors might have access. And uh, this one guy uh, was committed of a sex offense several years ago, involved a minor. He was required to register as a sex offender. It was recently discovered by the local police that he was on Facebook uh, under a different name and that he actually posted recently. And that uh, the last time uh, he had filled out his annual registration form, he had omitted to mention that he was on Facebook. So like double whammy there and violating his probation uh, so now they want to lock him up and convict him of violating the rules, and he's taken it to the Supreme Court. The uh, lower court rejected his argument that this violates uh, his constitutional rights of freedom of speech. The other case, which is very interesting for us, I think, uh, revolves around the fact that the age of dissent, uh, the age of consent for sex varies among the states, and only a very small number require you to be at least 18 years old to consent to sex. Uh, Many of them, New York included, I think, are 17, and some are even 16, and even lower in one or two cases. Uh, So California has a rule that you have to be 18, and if an adult has sex with someone under 18, it violates the law unless the person is no more than three years older than the younger sex partner. All right, so we have someone who's in the country lawfully from Mexico. And he's an adult, and he has sex with a 17-year-old woman in California, and he's convicted of statutory rape, which is having sex with a minor because minors are not capable of consent. All right, so he's being processed for deportation by the Homeland Security people because uh, sexual offenses against minors are considered serious felonies, serious offenses, and uh, that can be a basis for uh, deporting someone from the United States. And he says, well, hold on a minute. In most of the states, what I did wasn't even a crime. So how can you deport me under a federal law for conduct, which in most of the United States is legal? And uh, the lower court took the position. Uh, he's, he's not living in California anymore, so it's a different circuit. I think it's the Sixth Circuit. Uh, took the position that uh, it's up to the attorney general's discretion to decide whether any particular offense is serious enough to justify deporting somebody. And the the idea is that in terms of deporting uh, people who are lawfully in the country, the focus has been on people who are lawbreakers, 
that you don't want to have them around. Uh, so the attorney general has exercised her discretion in this case and said California says it's a serious felony. It involves children. In fact, the list of deportable crimes includes offenses against children. We're going to send them out. Uh, so the Supreme Court is being asked now and has agreed to consider whether he has something to his argument that he shouldn't be held to be deportable for engaging in conduct that in most of the country isn't a crime. So we have three cases. I mean, in that case, it was a man and, and a woman, but obviously this, this could apply in cases of, quote, intergenerational sex between men and men or women and women. All right, a lot to digest there. We will take a short break, and when we return, we'll uh, stay in the area of anti-discrimination law, but in the state context uh, in Iowa, we'll switch to a federal court decision challenging uh, their state anti-discrimination law. All right, we're back to talk about Fort Des Moines Church of Christ versus Jackson. Start with some background here. Both the Iowa Civil Rights Act and the Des Moines City Code prohibit places of public accommodation from discriminating based on gender identity, based on 2007 and 2011 legislative amendments. Uh, the statute and ordinance, however, both have explicit exceptions for bona fide religious institutions acting with bona fide religious pur purposes. Although these exceptions don't apply if an institution uh, provides gratuitous services and receives government support or subsidy. Uh, so enter the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, the notoriously anti-LGBT uh, legal defense group. Uh, they found uh, they got in touch with this Fort Des Moines Church of Christ, who uh, saw some compliance guidance that the State Civil Rights Commission put out on how the religious exception uh, might might work and not work uh, in certain circumstances. And uh, the, so this church uh, has restrooms and shower facilities in it, and they would like to uh, publicly post and distribute uh, their policy that transgender people should not use the restroom consistent with their gender identity. Um, they also would like the minister of the church would also like to be able to preach against transgender and gay people. And they were worried that, that some guidance that the State Civil Rights Commission had put out online uh, indicated that they might be subject to an enforcement action uh, under the state and city civil rights uh, anti-discrimination laws if they were to go forward with this. Well, well, let me get this theory. So the idea is that by preaching religious disapproval of gender identity, uh, they might be accused of, like, advertising that transgender people are not welcome to use the restrooms in their church or something like that. Yeah. So basically the state uh, and city anti-discrimination laws have two parts, and there is um, a discriminatory practices uh, prohibition and a discriminatory publications prohibition. Um, so they're really more, the, the second one there, those discriminatory publications uh, subpart is a little bit more what, what came into play here with the First Amendment action. Yeah, and in terms of the history of those things, they sort of date back to the days before Title VII when newspapers would publish their help-wanted classifieds and they had male jobs, female jobs, and I assume in some parts of the country 
you know, minorities, uh, racial minorities need not apply or something. Yeah. You couldn't. So Title VII had to specifically address this, and it did. And it, it proved to be a model for a lot of states and cities that you can't advertise illegal restrictions for employment or for public accommodations or for housing. So they're just, I mean, they're doing something that has been done for decades in civil rights laws. Uh, it just happens to be they've added gender identity. Right. So they're saying you can't advertise that you discriminate based on gender identity. And I should say the guidance that the state Civil Rights Commission put out was really talking about if you have a daycare center that you run at your church that's sort of a secular daycare center, or if you are a polling place on voting days uh, for the local community, that is when uh, these statutes or the ordinance would come into play for a church. But uh, the church, and probably with some prodding by the ADF, was more than happy to uh, play into the you know bathroom hysteria that we've talked about in our first segment. And they had some co-plaintiffs too, didn't they? Yeah. I think some ministers. Yes, the minister yeah. of the church. Um, so they brought a an action in federal court. They sought declaratory and injunctive relief um, based on a facial and an as-applied uh, free speech challenge. They also... Uh, brought up the religion clauses of the First Amendment, and they said it was also a due process issue because the, the statute ordinance are vague. Um, now, you're, anyone who's sort of taken uh, civil procedure knows that the first thing you've got a hurdle you've got to clear is uh, having standing in federal court. And luckily for the church, there's actually sort of strong precedent that when you're bringing one of these First Amendment challenges, if you can allegedly argue that you are self-censoring yourself, that will be accepted as an injury uh, for purposes of the standing analysis. Yeah, the old chill idea. Yes. So according to the judge, um, she did not buy that they were self-censoring any of their um, sermons. The minister was self-censoring his sermons because she said that would clearly fall under the religious exception to the anti-discrimination laws. And the First Amendment would undoubtedly bar any kind of prosecution of a, of a minister. But she did say, you know, the fact that they aren't publishing or posting this bathroom policy is an uh, arguable uh, self-censorship and objectively reasonable. Um, so that um, got them into federal court. So, But then when she moved on to the preliminary injunction and whether they needed a preliminary injunction, she sort of said, you know, the... You've, you've done enough to get into federal court, but I'm not really seeing any chance of this statute being enforced against you. Oh, excuse me. She cited the famous uh, St. Patrick's Day parade case uh, in 1995 uh, for the proposition that uh, provisions like these in anti-discrimination state anti-discrimination laws are well within the state's usual power to enact when a legislature has reason to believe that a given group is the target of dis discrimination. And they do not, as a general matter, violate the First or Fourteenth Amendments. And I think we had some assurances here uh, from the defendants, from the state and the city, that they weren't planning to go after the church. Yeah. I mean, that wasn't their, their big target here. Right. Um, when she looked at the discriminatory publications part of the statute ordinance, she agreed that, that there's a, length, a more complicated First Amendment analysis there because it does target um, certain speech. But ultimately, she said, there's just too much uncertainty about whether they're planning to enforce the statute or the ordinance against the church and its bathroom policy. Um, the uncertainty favored uh, the church under the standing analysis, but it doesn't support its claims under a very 
searching constitutional analysis. Right, because a preliminary injunction against enforcement of a statute is pretty strong medicine. Yep. And you have to make a very, very strong showing that the enforcement against you would violate your constitutional rights. Yeah. And here it's a little uncertain. Yeah. And since uh, since the opinion came out, the church voluntarily dismissed the action uh, on October 26. So I think this was much ado about nothing, uh, but uh, a chance for this church to maybe get some get some headlines on the issue of the, the restrooms and religious liberty. But I will say um, the fact that it's so um, vividly brings up the public accommodations aspect of uh, state anti-discrimination laws. There's been a lot of um, uh, headlines in the, the LGBT press the last couple of weeks about sort of compromises on that sort of issue in states where they haven't yet passed a public accommodations law that includes us. Do you want to say something about that, Art? Yeah, there's, there's a, a bit of a dispute that's arisen between those who take the incrementalist approach and say we should try to get as much protection as is politically feasible now, even if that falls short of our ultimate goal, because we can come back later and lobby for the rest. And uh, what's sometimes upheld as an example of that is the Utah Compromise, where they finally passed a sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination law, but they cut big holes out of it so that the Mormon Church, which has so many activities in in Utah, uh, would not have to comply with it. Uh, and uh, some people were touting the Utah Compromise. This is the way we're going to break through to more states that have been resistant. You know, if we agree to make big exemptions and perhaps not to cover uh, public accommodations with gender identity, which was a compromise that was made to get the Massachusetts gender identity law through, they were able to ban gender identity uh, discrimination in employment and housing by agreeing not to go for public accommodations, and then a few years later, they finally go back and amend it to add public accommodations. Uh, in New York, the compromise was even uh, s- stronger. There, there was uh, a combined law that was proposed for sexual orientation and gender identity, and the chief sponsor in the state senate, Tom Duane, said, look, we can't get gender identity through yet, and not enough work has been done on that. We can only get sexual orientation. And there was a lot of controversy then about whether to go forward or not. Uh, sexual orientation was passed, and we're still waiting to pass gender identity. So, you know, the incrementalist approach can sometimes get you something, but the question is whether what you sacrifice is worth it to get what you get. And even uh, attorneys who are very active in transgender li- rights law are, are divided on this. A lot of them say, let's get the protection we can get. If we can get employment, if we can get housing, Maybe we should wait on public accommodations. So maybe we should allow a bathroom carve-out for an hour, you know, be an in- incrementalist approach to get what we can. Other people say, no, we're, further, we're for, far enough along in this movement that we should be getting the whole thing because the litigation that's going on under these because-of-sex statutes shows that we may already have it or we may already be entitled to have it by judicial interpretation. So why should we cut back now? and compromise on our legislative proposals. We should be going for the whole thing. Uh, so, And this is being fought out in part because one of the major foundations that does a lot of funding of LGBT rights litigation is saying uh, we support the incrementalist approach and if you don't agree with us, we may not fund you. Uh, and so the various organizations are now being challenged on the financial side as to whether they will forego funding in order to uh, retain the broader approach of seeking 
as much as we can possibly seek in pending legislation. So it would be interesting to see this play out. It's, it's uh, quite an argument going on, and it's sort of surfaced in the gay press recently and generated a lot of Thanks op-ed Thanks some commentary. great reporting by BuzzFeed. I'll give right. them some credit. Buzz, BuzzFeed first uh, sort of broke the story. Yeah. All right. We will take another short break, and when we return, we will focus on a Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court uh, opinion that used gender-neutral construction statute uh, in that state to find uh, parenting rights for a same-sex partner. All right, we are back to talk about the uh, parentage uh, decision from the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Uh, can you tell us about it, Art? Okay, this is Partnin versus Gallagher. Uh, which was decided on October 4th. And sort of interesting side note, there was a similar decision from Arizona just a week later. Yeah. And, so, of course, the New York decision right, a couple months ago. Right. So, uh, you know, we're, we're making advances in getting courts to recognize co-parents outside of a marital context, and that's what this case involves. Yeah. Uh, two women who had been from Massachusetts, uh, they moved down to Florida they wanted to have kids. Uh, the idea was that each of them would become pregnant and bear a child through donor insemination. But uh, Karen Partnin was unable to conceive through donor insemination. Uh, so Julie Gallagher went ahead and actually had two children. Uh, in Florida at the time, uh, there was a state law banning homosexuals adopting children. So they, they made no attempt to have a second parent adoption down there. Uh, they moved back to Massachusetts and when they moved to Massachusetts, it was after same-sex marriage had become available here, uh, but they didn't marry, and it appears that maybe their relationship was already in trouble because they came to a parting of the ways not, not long after they moved up to Massachusetts. Uh, all right, so they were an unmarried same-sex couple, uh, bio-mom and non-bio-mom, co-partner, co-partner without any legal status because she made no attempt to adopt the children. Uh, and they made no attempt to do it when they moved to Massachusetts, where they could have as well. Uh, so uh, non-bio mom wants to continue being a mother to these children uh, who she's participated in raising since they were born and, in fact, whose conception she helped to plan uh, because these women decided together to have the children, or at least that's the evidence that was presented in her favor. Uh, so she first brought an action just to be declared a de facto parent, which would have gotten her visitation rights, and that was granted. Uh, and then she filed a separate action saying, well, no, there's a parentage statute under which I should be able to get full parental rights based on my, my the whole history of this, that I, I jointly agreed with my partner we would have these kids. I participated in the whole birthing process. Uh, when we brought the kids home to the house we shared together, we were a family unit, and I was held out as a parent, and I served the role of a parent, and the kids called me mommy and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, all the evidence to establish uh, not only de facto parentage, but under the Massachusetts uh, Paternal Rights Statute, or actually uh, it's called the Children Born Out of Wedlock provision. Uh, when children are born to a woman who is living with a man to whom she is not married, uh, and the man accepts the child into the house and treats the child as, as their child, uh, the statute provides a mechanism for the man to be adjudicated as the legal parent of the child. 
and the statute is written in gendered language. It's very clear that it's about men. It's about uh, paternal uh, status. Uh, but uh, Partnin argued that it should be given a gender-neutral interpretation and it should be applied to her situation as well. Uh, <clears throat> Gallagher argued to the uh, family court judge, well, no, the statute is written in gendered terms and it seems pretty clear that what the statute is concerned with, men and women who live together without getting married and have kids together and making sure that the man, even though he's not married to the woman who gave birth, is recognized as the legal parent. So it should only work when the man has biological ties to the child. And the family court judge bought it, which is sort of incredible considering the other uses to which the statute has been put, uh, which comes out in the Supreme Judicial Court decision by uh, openly lesbian Justice Barbara Lenk. Uh, so uh, in this case, the Supreme Judicial Court, in reversing the lower court, said, first of all, we have a statute in Massachusetts that says we're supposed to give a gender-neutral interpretation to statutes that use gendered language. Uh, presumably at some point along the way, the Massachusetts legislature thought, rather than the laborious process of going through the entire state code and changing all the language to be gender-neutral, you just put in a general interpretive provision stating that uh, wherever it's uh, sort of feasible to do it or makes sense to do it, you uh, construe statutory language to be gender-neutral. And she said, furthermore, you know, if you, obviously if you do a gender-neutral interpretation, then it's clear that Partnin meets all the other requirements of the statute of uh, having lived together and the child was born to the couple. Uh, and uh, they, uh, the, she had played a parental role in the whole, and bonded with the children and all that sort of thing. Uh, but furthermore, it seems that in its current gendered form, the statute had been used to adjudicate paternal status for men who are not biologically related to the kid. What if you have an unmarried different sex couple and they want to have a kid together, but the man is not fertile, and so they get a sperm donation? And then he uses the statute to be declared a parent. Well, sure. That fits right neatly within the gendered language of the statute, and yet the man is not biologically related to the child. So the court said, how can uh, the courts now import an unwritten requirement that the person seeking parental rights under the statute has to be biologically related to the kids, when in fact it has been used for years in situations where the biological parent, or where the, uh, the man who was seeking to be adjudicated uh, was not biologically related to the kids. And the mere fact that the statute, this was a point that Gallagher raised, the statute authorizes a woman in proper circumstances to have the court order the man to submit to a genetic test. Well, that's obviously for cases where the man didn't want to pay child support and the woman wanted to impose a child support duty on him on the grounds that he was the biological father. Uh, that obviously isn't this case. Uh, genetic testing uh, would be irrelevant here because it's obvious that Partnin is not the biological mother of these children. All right. Uh, so, but, but the bottom line is that this is a major, major step for unmarried same-sex couples, yeah. uh, primarily uh, women uh, in Massachusetts, uh, because this uh, paternal rights statute has now been construed authoritatively by the state Supreme Court that it must receive a gender-neutral interpretation, uh, and therefore they must be treated the same as men who are seeking to uh, establish. Uh, of course, it, it cuts both ways. They could also uh, be sued for support. Yeah. And I think part of the de facto parent uh, 
ruling by the trial court under a different uh, principle had also required her to pay child support. Yeah. Rather interestingly. But if she, you want visitation, you've got to pay child, child support. Right. You know? um, we should give Mary Bonato a shout-out, who argued right. the case. And Mary not, argued the uh, case. faded right. into irrelevance after winning over. Oh, no. Oh. Mary has been very busy. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting. You you think of the same-sex marriage decision, and you say, wow, we've hit nirvana. We've got our, our, main, our main goal. There's no more work to do. There's tons of work to do. Yeah. Uh, States that are resistant and, you know, situations involving unmarried couples because a lot of same-sex couples are not married. Some are. Some are not. And I know she was uncomfortable with always being so uh, in the media portrayed as only being concerned about marriage. I think she's shown that that's – well, that's important that she's very interested in also making sure that people uh, who aren't married have uh, protections under the law. She's got a wide-ranging portfolio, put it that way. All right, we will take our last short break, and we will update our listeners on uh, the conclusion of the Darren Ravi Tyler Clementi criminal case. All right, we are back to wrap up with our of note segment for this episode. Uh, in last month's podcast, we talked about the New Jersey Appellate Division decision that completely overturned the conviction of Darren Ravi, the New Jersey, uh, at the time of the the incident, was a New Jersey college student at Rutgers um, who used a webcam in his room to spy on his roommate, Tyler Clementi, while he had a gentleman uh, over uh, using their shared dorm room. Um, after Tyler tragically committed suicide, the case became a huge uh focus of the media and in 2012 Darren Ravi was uh, convicted on a variety of charges uh, but most prominently was convicted on under the state's bias intimidation statute. Um, In 2015 the state supreme court said the provision of that bias intimidation statute that um, Darren was convicted under and which the prosecution focused on uh, pretty prominently in the trial um, was unconstitutional because it sort of did not require uh, intent on the part of the defendant to commit a crime. Um, anyway, so fast forward to 2016, last uh, and during September, uh, the New Jersey Appellate Division said the fact that so much of the prosecution's evidence uh, revolved around proving this bias intimidation uh proving that Darren was was guilty of uh, violating this provision of the bias intimidation statute, that they had to throw out the convictions under all the charges that were brought against uh, Darren Ravi. Um, so can you tell us, Art, where, yeah, where the, we are the now? The idea was that the jury would be tainted by hearing all this evidence that shouldn't have been admitted yep. uh, because it went to the state of mind of the victim rather than of the defendant. Uh, so the case goes back to the prosecutor, and they have to decide whether to try him all over again. Uh, and it was pretty clear, it was signaled by the appellate division in its opinion, their belief that if you had excluded all this evidence, there was plenty of evidence there to convict him on some of the other counts. Uh, but uh, evidently there was uh, quickly negotiations on a plea because after all, he had been sentenced. He had served a very brief jail sentence. He had done his community service. He had paid his fine. Uh, does it make sense to go through a trial all over again? And he was willing, it turned out, to plead guilty to one count uh, on the understanding he wasn't going to be sentenced to a longer period or 
have a new fine imposed or something like that. So he pled guilty uh, to one count of attempted invasion of privacy, which was one of the 15 counts under which he was originally indicted. And there were, were many critics who said he was over-indicted in that case. Uh, there were, the counts were – some of them were very similar. Uh, but at any rate, he was – he pled guilty to this one count in exchange for them not prosecuting him on any of the others. And this is a third-degree felony, so that's pretty serious. Uh, it could affect uh, his ability to stay in the country since he's not a natural-born U.S. citizen. He's from India. Uh, his attorney said he's going to make an attempt uh, to get the uh, the felony conviction record uh, expunged on the grounds that uh, Ravi was a minor at the time uh, and hope that that will help with the immigration case. Uh and uh, the family of Tyler Clemente was advised by the prosecution that they were planning to do this, and the prosecution explained that they thought it was highly unlikely they could get this reversed by the New Jersey Supreme Court, and on that basis, the Clemente family said they would not object to this settlement. And uh, Mr. Ravi's attorney uh, said, uh, after Ravi himself said he had no statement to make in the court when he pled guilty other than to say he was pleading guilty to that one count of his own free will. Uh, the attorney said he just wants to disappear. You know, he, he doesn't want to be uh, a figure of continued public interest. He's, I would imagine, suitably chastened for what happened. Yeah. He undoubtedly learned a lesson out of all this. I think it's uh, it might finally be the end of the sort of legal saga that uh, was – you know, the, the product of this very tragic episode. But we should point out that it did lead to the Clemente family starting a foundation uh, to try to work on preventing bullying and harassment of gay kids in school and all kinds of harassment yeah. in school. And so, you know, they're trying to find something constructive out of the tragedy that occurred with their son. Yeah. All right. That's all the time we have today. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you enjoy the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBTBarNY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in December. 